0: All right. Um, it is really good to be here with you this morning, and it is obvious to all of you by now. I am not Mark, so if we haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name's Kyle. Uh, my family and I have been coming here to Gospel City Church for, gosh, uh, eight-plus years now, so time has really flown, and uh, from time to time, Mark gives me the, the honor and privilege to come and share with you, and uh, he called me, I guess, three or four weeks ago, and said, uh, hey man, uh, I gotta be out on the 13th. I've got to get Addie moved into college. So Mark is down in Austin today, getting Addie all set for her freshman year, and me, being the supportive family friend that I am, I dress for the occasion. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. Now, um, So, uh, it is my pleasure to be here. As we're in this important day, as already been said, we're moving in our series of storyline from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And today, we get to talk about the birth of Jesus. And so, in many ways, everything that we've talked about up until this point has been pointing to and building up to this occasion that we're going to discuss today. And so, I thought... Let's do a quick recap. Let's sort of talk about where we've been and what we've been learning and how it's brought us to this point today. And so if you remember in the garden, immediately after the fall, God makes a promise to Adam and Eve. And he says, Adam and Eve, through your offspring is going to come one who will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, God's going to send a savior and that Savior is going to deal a mortal blow to the enemy and make everything right again. But we kept going, and what we saw was that things got really bad. So bad that God starts over, in a sense, floods the earth, and, and, and begins again with Noah and his family. And more generations go by, and generation after generation, and then God surprises us. Because he calls this man named Abram out of a faraway land, and he brings him to this new place. And it's surprising because Abram was a pagan. He was out there worshiping the moon when God called him. And God makes another promise. He says, Abram, I'm going to build a nation from you and your offspring. And not only that, from your offspring will come one who will bless the entire world. So what God tells Abram is this, that that promised savior that I told Adam and Eve about, that promised savior is going to come from your offspring, Abram. And God does build a nation from Abram or Abraham through his grandson Jacob, who's quite a character himself, but that nation ends up enslaved in Egypt. And so God has to raise up a servant. He raises up Moses and he brings that nation out of bondage into a place called Mount Sinai. And God gives them there his law. And the nation says, all these things we will do. We'll keep all of your law, God. And I think it lasted about 10 minutes. And, uh, and so they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and God has to use this man named Joshua to actually bring the people into the land. And God reminds them. He says, I'm giving you the land. It's a gift. And you can stay As long as you do two things, worship me and me alone and follow my commandments. And once again, they say, all these things we will do. And they don't. And there's a period of judges that goes kind of good sometimes and really bad lots of the times. And and then God raises up a king, a king after his own heart named David. And God makes another promise. And he says, David, your house, it's going to be secure and not only that, David, you're going to have offspring. Your offspring will be on my throne forever. And you think as you go through, you said, okay, here we go. I've been waiting. That Savior is coming. It's around the corner. And then you keep reading and you realize it only takes one generation. After David's son Solomon dies, the nation splits in two. North and southern kingdom and By that time, both nations begin a descent into sin and idolatry that culminates in the conquest and exile of both kingdoms. And then over about the last month, we've been looking at promises God made to bring his people back. And he used people like Ezra and Nehemiah to bring this remnant of Jewish people back to Judea with the promise ever in their mind. But see, the reality is, is that things are not what they were. Right, Because they came back, they were still under the control of what was then the Medo-Persian Empire. And then there was this fellow you might have heard of named Alexander the Great. And he conquered the known world. And the Jewish people find themselves under the Greek Empire. Well, that, the Greek Empire falls and now what happens? They're under the thumb of the Roman Empire. It's been 400 years since the last prophet of the Old Testament spoke a word. And they're under the thumb of this This empire, the Romans. And so it raises a question. How is God going to keep his promises? How is God going to keep his promises? The fact of the matter is, though, that God's given some hints along the way. And Caleb shared one of them from the prophet Isaiah. I want to share another from the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23. And I just want to read two verses for you. Jeremiah says, "...behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord." When I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So what the prophet, what God is saying is something had to change. A different kind of king was needed. And the good news is that a different kind of king was on his way. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We'll be in the second chapter of Luke, looking at the first 14 verses. And I have four things I want to go through today. uh, And we'll move through them pretty quickly and and hopefully get to that last one uh, so we can, can dwell there for a little bit. But I want to talk about divine providence, good news, great glory, and perfect peace. So if you'll look with me in in your copy of the scripture, or it'll be up on the screen, I want to look at the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. I want you to notice with me, how Luke grounds his narrative in history. He starts with, in those days, as if he's asking you, the reader, to to ask the question, which days? And he tells you, the days when Quirinius was governor of Syria and the time when the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus called for a census. And we can actually look at history and know when this was. It's probably sometime in 2 or 3 B.C., And and the specific date's not the important part I want to draw your attention to. It's the fact that this was real people in a real place at a specific time. And that's important because, you see, our God acts in history. Our God orchestrates events. He orchestrates circumstances. And yes, He even orchestrates the choices made by people to accomplish His purposes and His ends. That's what we call divine providence. And I know some of you are thinking, whoa, wait a minute. How does that work? Write this down. Mark at (laughs) gospelcitychurch.com. No, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. So let let me tell you the truth. I don't know. I don't know how that works, how that all fits together just so. But God is very clear about a couple of things. One, People make real choices with real consequences every day. And he's in total control all the time. I don't know how that exactly fits together. It's what we call a paradox. It's kind of like the Trinity, three in one. That's a paradox. It's a mystery. But as I often told my kids when they would ask hard questions, I actually find comfort in the fact that I can't fully explain our God. It reminds me that he's not a God made by human hands and he is not an invention of a human mind. He is bigger than that and his ways are far, far above our ways. Now, what about the why? Why this time, this people, this place? Now, I don't have all the answers there, but hindsight does tell you some things and I thought I would share a couple of them with you. One, God made, made a promise. In Micah chapter 5, God says the Savior, the Messiah, will come from Bethlehem. And so I love that God used a census throughout the entire Roman Empire to bring a teenage girl 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That's pretty awesome. What else? Well, this time period, historians often refer to it as Pax Romana. That's just Latin, and it means the peace of Rome. Because this was a time period of unprecedented peace and prosperity that saw a lot of investments in infrastructure. This was when the very famous Roman roads that you may have heard about were built, that facilitated travel. This was the, saw the development of a common language. We call it Koine Greek. It's the language that our New Testament was originally written in. And God used those roads and God used that language to spread his gospel throughout the entire world. See, you might say, well, that's very interesting, but but why is it important? Because just as God orchestrated events to bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, and just as he orchestrated events to bring Jesus into the world at a time that facilitated the spread of the gospel, God is likewise working today. He hasn't stopped. You know, our anxiety, our fears, and 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 I just assume you're like me, But for me, my anxieties and my fears are so much the time bound up in things that are out of my control. You know, they could be in my immediate vicinity and still be out of my control, or they could be far away and very much out of my control, and I have anxiety about it. But you know what? These things are not out of God's control. He has promised to work all things together for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. That's us, and that's his promise. Now, Luke surprises us a little bit here in this text because he's going to take us away from that stable, from that picturesque scene that we so often have at the holidays of Mary and Joseph and newborn Jesus, and he takes us to a field. Look with me at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. See, God continues to remind us here that his ways are not our ways. Because if God had come to me and said, okay, where should we send the message to first? I would have said, yeah, let's go to Jerusalem. I mean, that's where the high priest is. That's where the Sanhedrin is. That's where the temple is. But not our God. He sends the message to simple shepherds. And while there might not be anything particularly remarkable about these shepherds, the message they receive, and the manner in which it was delivered is absolutely stunning. I want you to think back to a time maybe when you've spent some time outdoors. Maybe you were camping. Maybe you're a hunter. Maybe you're like me, and you just live out in the middle of nowhere, and you look at the sky at night, and if all you've got is starlight and maybe a little bit of moonlight, you know how dark it can be, right? That was the shepherds at that moment in time, and then The sky is lit by the glory of God. And they hear the voice of an angel. No wonder they were afraid. But the angel's message is good news. Good news of great joy. there's something about that Greek word that's translated good news. It's actually euangelizo. And euangelizo is where we get our English word evangelize. And funny thing about that word, oftentimes in the New Testament, it's simply translated as preach the gospel. I love that, that God sent the angels to preach good news to shepherds. And it reminds us of something that we must not forget. The gospel is good news. Good news of great joy. News is to be proclaimed and received. Good news is about something that has happened, not something that needs to be done. The 20th century Anglican theologian John Stott put it this way. He said, the gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Christ. Not an invitation to us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. Not a demand, but an offer. And you see, in this case, the good news of great joy is this. At long last, after waiting thousands of years, God has sent his Savior into the world. A Savior who is both Messiah and Lord. This is the promised one. This is the one that would crush the head of the serpent. This is the one through whom all the nations on the earth would be blessed. And he's not just from God. He is God. Well, this light show was just getting started for the shepherds. So let's continue with verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see, it seems that by this point in time, a single angel was no longer sufficient. So God sends the multitude of the heavenly host. To deliver this news I think we can only imagine the sight but if I'm honest and if you're honest with yourselves how many times have we seen this verse read this verse heard this verse and just moved on along today I don't want to do that I want to stop and I want to reflect a bit on something that I noticed when I was studying and preparing notice what the angels say here they don't just say glory to God they say glory to God in the highest. In other words, I think they're saying nothing brings God as much glory as this does. You know, sometimes when we're studying our Bible, it's helpful to take something like this and really kind of ponder it, mull it over, think about it. What are the implications? The Bible calls this meditation. Meditation. And I want to try to illustrate this today by asking and attempting to answer this question. Why does the birth of Jesus bring God the highest glory? Let me propose five potential reasons with a disclaimer. By no means do I think these are all the reasons. I suspect there are thousands more. I also don't know if these are the best five reasons. These are the five reasons that came to me that I wanted to share with you today. Number one, the birth of Jesus brings God the highest glory because it supremely demonstrates the love of the Son for the Father. In his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul says this, he says, Though he, meaning the Son, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Think about the way that Jesus humbled himself To become incarnate. And he did it to fulfill his Father's will. Second, the birth of Jesus brings God the highest glory because it supremely demonstrates the love of God for his people. And you know this verse For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How much did God love the world? Enough that he gave the very best that he had to offer, his only son. Third, the birth of Jesus brings God the highest glory because Jesus is the one and only means by which sinful people can be restored to a right relationship with their creator. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Fourth, the birth of Jesus brings God the highest glory because it inaugurated a kingdom that would never end. And I told Caleb, I said, you know, I've got that Isaiah 9 verse in in my talk. Uh, It it just reminds me that, that there's bigger forces at play here today. But as he read to you, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And you see, when Jesus came and Jesus died and he rose again and ascended to his father, that kingdom Began And it has not ended because He rules and reigns at the right hand of His Father today. Fifth and finally, the birth of Jesus brings God the highest glory because Jesus is God's greatest and final word. The author of Hebrews says, "...in these last days He," meaning God, "...has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world." He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. See, there is no greater name than Jesus. And one day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. <laughs> glory to God in the highest indeed. Indeed. You know, the angels had more to say, though. Let me read for you verse 14 again. Verse 14 says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, first I want to say something about peace. This peace is m- about more than just the absence of conflict. It is that, but it's m- way more than that. This is the Old Testament concept of shalom. And I looked, on, I looked on the online for what I thought was a good definition that could sort of sum this up, and I found one at blueletterbible.org, which is a, a very valuable online study tool. And the definition for peace that they gave was, The tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God, and content with its earthly lot. That's peace. In fact, I would say that's perfect Peace. Shalom, shalom. Now, what about that verse 14? You may be thinking something, especially if you were like me and you were raised on the King James Version, or maybe, very least, you were raised on a Charlie Brown Christmas, like I was also, right? And you might be thinking, that verse 14 that you read, it doesn't sound like I remember it. And that's because you remember the King James, which reads like this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace Goodwill toward men. But you know, the modern translations all agree that in this particular instance, the King James is not the best translation of the original Greek. And so, for instance, the NIV says, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The Christian Standard Bible says, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. And the ESV that we read just now says glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. If you sit with that for a minute and you think about it it leads to some thoughts because it leads to some thoughts with me and here's what they sound like. How can I know that that peace is for me? Does God favor me? Is God pleased with me? And if you sit with that and you think about it, there's a couple of different ways you can react. So first, some of you might be thinking about now, all right, okay, bootstrap time. I'm going to buckle down. I'm really going to get serious and I'm going to obey like I've never obeyed before. If that's you, or if you're prone to that way of thinking, can I say as clearly as I possibly can today, and there's no judgment here from me, but that won't work. It cannot work. Because God's standard is perfect holiness. Perfect obedience. Every time, all the time. And that means that we cannot earn our way into God's favor. And there's a second group of you and I want to draw you back if you tuned me out because that sounded pretty depressing to you because I'm in this group with you and you think you know what? There's no way. There's no way God can favor me. There's no way that God can be pleased with me because I know I know what I've done, and I know what this feels every day. And so you despair. Can I tell you that I have good news? Good news of great joy. Not good advice. It's as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, he says, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Peace with God comes only through Jesus Christ because only through Jesus Christ can we be justified by faith. And we talk about justification all the time because we are so prone to forget what it means. And justification means, how can I have a right standing before my Creator? How can He look at me and say, Righteous in my sight. And he tells you right here, it comes through faith in Jesus and his finished work. And maybe you're thinking, well, my faith is it's pretty weak. And honestly, it doesn't even feel like faith most of the time. I want you to remember something it is not the strength of your faith that matters. It is the object of your faith. And here's the truth. If the object of your faith is Jesus, then His record of obedience is credited to you. And your record of sin and my record of sin was crucified on a cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That is justification. That is the great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. And the band's going to come and lead us in worship. But I want to leave you with something that I think kind of sums up where we've been today. And I guess it's the, the educator in me. I want to give you something to, to take away, a little homework maybe. Maybe something that, that we can even teach you in the few minutes we have remaining. You might be familiar with the concept of catechisms, especially if you grew up in a more liturgical tradition. Catechisms are pretty simple. They're just series of questions and answers and a way of learning deep truths. There's a catechism that I like. It's relatively new and it's aptly named the New City Catechism. So if you have a smartphone, doesn't matter if you have an Apple or an Android, you can go to Apple Store, or Google Play, you can actually download the New City Catechism. 52 questions and 52 answers, one for each day of the week. It actually draws its content from some of the oldest and time-tested catechisms from throughout Christian history. And question 1 is my favorite. It's actually derived from the Heidelberg Catechism which was written in 1563. Question one from the New City Catechism is this. What is our only hope in life and death? Answer, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the adult version. Let me give you the children's version real quick because I bet you can memorize it right there in your seat and walk out with it. I taught my kids this when they were real little and pray every day that this is what they remember. What is our only hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong to God. That's peace. That's perfect peace. Will you pray with me? Oh, God, we thank you so much that you sent your son. We thank you that you loved us that much, that you would give your very best. And that through him, through his work, his obedience, his faithfulness, we can be called your children. And we can know, we can know that we have right standing before you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we Got respond and worship.